Hello and welcome to this jam-packed episode 14 of Straight From The Hot Tap. In this episode we discuss the insidious role of social media, creative, amusing and downright revolting pranks and Matt reminds us of how successful he is. Our special guest interview is with ex-Taunton resident Simon Michael Pryor. Simon is the author of two very successful books, The Coconut Wireless and An Englishman in New York. We talked to Simon about his travels, his Taunton origins and an alarming incident involving pigs and a nun on a very small plane. Links to Simon's books will be in the show notes. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and leave us a review on Podchaser. You can even now buy us a coffee on buymeacoffee.com. If you didn't, well, why not turn it off and go back to eating avocado sandwiches with a bottle of Topachico? I'm Matt. And I'm Lou. I'm John. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is Straight, Straight from the Hot Saturday. So one of the things about TV was that they thought that TV would corrupt people, didn't they? I saw a really, really funny article the other day that really made me think of, of us and our past and so on. There's a TV show in Iraq that took the pranking concept to a completely new and ridiculous level. So essentially, they, they basically filmed with, with hidden cameras, guests at, at weddings and so on. As a prank, they staged an ISIS kidnap, an ambush. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. Can oh, you man. imagine? Can you imagine it? You're at a wedding, and there's these, these guys in there with hidden cameras. And the next thing, yeah. ISIS appear with, with AK-47s. <laughs> And you're marched out into the desert. <laughs> they have a mock execution, and then Jeremy Beadle pops out saying, pranked you. Surprise! That's Surprise. Yeah. What's really interesting is that the host, Jeremy Beadle of Iraq, right, who was the most successful stand-up comedian in Iraq, he was actually the victim of a particularly bad kidnapping himself. Was he? Does he also have a wanking claw like Jeremy Beadle? Dude, you could I know. <laughs> Pranks, right? I've been involved in some over the years. I've taken really? it too, too far. Yeah. It always makes yeah. you sound like a victim to the pranks rather than the complete <laughs> yeah. Yeah. perpetrator of all of them. Is that the social media thing kicking in now that we're rewriting history? <laughs> <laughs> the only pranks you've been involved in, Matt, over the years are ones you've organised and directed yourself. This this is true, yeah. This so is that's true. a lot then, right? The best prank, that I, I'm not going to lie, I have dined out on this story now for 20 years, I reckon. And that's the story, Johnny, you told us about the five presents. Oh, no, no. no. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, oh, you, you... <laughs> Welcome. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> it's the, yeah, greatest, but... the greatest prank in the history of pranks, I think. I don't know if the audience want it hear it to be honest because it's so disgusting the origin of it is a little bit is a bit hazy it could have been like my housemate bane or it might have happened to one of his mates or it could just be some big urban myth there was five housemates they were like in a university anyway they had they fell out with one of their housemates and it all got quite unsavory and you know it was really sort of four four of them against against one it was it was kind of the writing was on the wall at, at some point so they went they, i think it was like a christmas break or a, it was a holiday of some sort they went they went their separate ways. When they came back from their break, there was a note on the table. It was from the guy that they sort of ostracized. It was like, hi, you know, hi guys. I've, are you pleased to know I've left? And I've left you five presents. And so 
they were, mm. so they went to their they sort of like curious they went around the house and they went went to their individual rooms and and in each of the each of the rooms they discovered that basically he'd left a very personal present he'd he'd left a turd in each of their bedrooms like in the cupboard or <laughs> under the bed or something like that. <laughs> um he must have hung around for a day or two i guess <laughs> anyway so they then they looked they, then they were like five presents but okay so so they looked all around the house and anyway they they didn't find the fifth present so then they were, <laughs> they, were they were just anyway they just moved moved on and like university life just continued for for several weeks student life so cooking together and living together eating together and communal living until one morning one morning when um (laughs) when one of them was making some toast and (laughs) they make some make some toast and he uh sort of went to the fridge to get (laughs) to get the top of margarine out and scrape it Scraped no. the margarine down, and there was <gasps> just the fifth present. <laughs> like so the guy had done some, oh, some horrible scatological <laughs> sort of excavating and, and backfilling, and they just been they'd been eating the eating the margarine for the last sort of like three, three or four weeks. <laughs> 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 It's a revenge prank of horrible revenge. Oh, is just is so, so cold. The best serve like a fridge buttery. <laughs> buttery. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's not oh, butter. That's um. That's one to go for if you yeah if you find yourself in a difficult domestic situation. Well, it, it wouldn't be the first thing I think of, but right. <laughs> the best pranks are definitely the the slow acting ones, the sort of quite insidious, ingenious ones like that. This guy I used to work with, Tom, is is, is you know a good friend of mine. Yeah, he worked with me for a bit, and I was his boss. I played a few pranks on him, and all fairly low key stuff. I didn't notice, but for for a good couple of weeks, he was particularly generous with with making me coffee. Normally, we'd alternate and. I didn't really notice until I did notice that he was he was making me coffee. Anyway, I remember one weekend I, I went and made myself a coffee, and I was and I couldn't I couldn't st- tolerate it at all. It was disgusting, like properly really bitter and nasty, and I couldn't work out what it was. Anyway, it turns out that Tom, over a couple of weeks, grain by grain, had weaned me onto having sugar in my coffee. <laughs> He'd literally just gradually increased the dosage, so I couldn't, I didn't notice it for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden, like I was completely just had to have sugar in my coffee. It was just, it was, it was just so subtle and also so irritating. So I had to then go back the other way. But, but yeah. No, I know. Jamie Rosenshine, I got him, I got him in a big way actually. After he he pranked me with something pretty lame. He kept um, sticking pasty signs over my door. He managed to get a job lot of giant pasty signs, like a, a marketing thing. Is this he, another opportunity like to dig up our, our favourite pasty shop in Taunton? Oggy pasties, definitely. It wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't Oggy pasties, definitely. So he found these these pasty signs outside a like a, a, a Greg's branch or something, and he just kept sellotaping to my front door. So it was kind of funny, but also kind of annoying. 
but I couldn't get at him because... I can think of funnier things, if honest. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get to him because he lived on a, a second floor flat, so it's quite hard to get to him. And he was quite elusive. He wasn't working at the time, so he was always, you know, he was always around during the day. And he was just quite difficult to get to. And then one night, I was coming home from, from somewhere quite late, and I bumped into him, absolutely paralytic drunk. Like, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't hardly stand up. He was absolutely off his face. I, I rang him the next day, and he had absolutely no recollection of going out that night at all. He was in absolute pieces. So, so then the, the idea came to me. Those of you that, that know me know that I, I, I'm quite creative with, you know, with photo editing software. <laughs> I, I, made, I made a letter on Twickenham and Richmond police headed notepaper demanding that he attends a police lineup at Twickenham Police Station <laughs> at a particular date and time for a, an offence uh, of causing actual bodily harm to a cat. And the, not a cat again, oh my god. Yeah, well, oh my so, god. So, the H on a cat. Yeah, exactly. So it was quite ridiculous. And the information I gave him about the offence was the night and time that he was out on the piss. And I asked him, as part of the lineup to wear the exact clothes he was wearing that night. And that, I, that's beer fear right there. Right, yeah. And I, did, I, I honestly, I typed the envelope and everything, absolutely. And, and, I, and I posted it first class, using, but even better, using the work franking machine. So it looked really oh official. Oh, God. I know, yeah. And talk about, talk about shitting somebody up. I went around his house, actually, the day after we got this letter, and he was actually white with fear. Like, I had no idea what to do. And of course, he, yeah, because he couldn't remember anything that happened that night. The only witness I put in the letter that the only witness was an elderly lady. You know, what if she ha- she was going a bit mad or senile, and she saw me and thought I was doing something and I wasn't? And honestly, he he properly properly freaked him out. So yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that one. Well, it's slightly extreme for him sticking pasty signs over your door. <laughs> yeah, there was more to it than that, but yeah, it, yeah. it was. Speaking of nuclear options, I mean, like, you know. Well, he was taking a knife to a gunfight, I think is the expression, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> what was the one with Joshuana Burdett? Was oh, that God, like, yes. Was that like a, like a long, <laughs> long-running one? It was like... <laughs> I, 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 kept, I kept my sister used to read like teenage girl magazines, basically. Um, and, they, and they often used to have these like the, yeah, these adverts for, for sending off for free samples and stuff. So yeah. I used to have Josh send tampons and makeup samples and all kinds of I just I just remember to Josh Joanna Burnett. And it was like a school holiday, so and, and there was this parcel arrived. I was just, my mum was like, Oh, there's a parcel just arrived. Again, this was like before this well, we were at school, there was no such thing as like online shopping and all this. I was like, What a parcel? What are you that's just you know, what is that? What, they were like, Wow, how exciting. Yeah, it completely yeah. was. And I, and I opened it in the kitchen, it was just like sort of four tampons to address the Josh Joshuana Burnett. I was like, Oh god. And I think I immediately knew it was Beatty. I think I got the phone call. Or, or I, said, I would have maybe sent him a letter. <laughs> some, some a strongly letter. worded letter. So the other day, right, I get a letter in my mailbox from the IRS. I'm like, oh, great. They've given me another debt relief check. Can't get enough of those. I open it up and it says, due to a mistake on your 2018 taxes, you owe the federal government a further $5,000. It's not even true. 
So now I'm going to have to get my tax attorney to do that as well as doing my 2020 taxes. And then the same evening, I get an email from my immigration attorney going, they made a mistake when you last entered the country before COVID. And so you're only technically legal for another month. On my visa, it says un- until mid-2022. Dude. You know. Did they stamp so your passport, though? Do you get a they stamp? Did incorrectly. Oh. So do you want to pick it up from Heathrow next week, then? Yeah, I'll, I'll just do a call from, like, the Travel Tavern in, uh, <laughs> in Hounslow. Can you bring back some fags, Matt? Yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's a... That's a Chico, whatever it's called. Maybe Boris Johnson set up a welcome centre for people who've been deported. I think it's a very expensive hotel, Matt. That's what it is. Some are approaching and after a long winter lockdown. At SmoothMyBalls.com, we're here to help you look your best. Wear your speedos free from fear on the beach in minutes with our amazing Turf Chopper personal grooming device. It's 1,900 revolutions per minute will make short work of even the most luxuriant of man bushes. Today tells of battery life and our amazing innovative safe sack technology, you can shave goodbye to unwanted hair whether it's your back, sack or crack. Our money back, no stitches guarantee will give your peace, peace of mind as you groom even the hairiest of man crevices. Use the code 456SHINYNUTS to get 20% off your order. If you buy our turf chopper before the end of May, you throw in a sack mat for just £10. That's a ball balm, absolutely free. Visit www.smoothmyballs.com for more information. You really are a sick fuck, Matt. I mean, but you, you're very dedicated to your work, Matt. I mean, that was, that was quite good. That headhunting agency must be working you hard. Every day at Matt's office is like Glengarry Glen Ross, and he's Jack Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> Put that turf chopper down. Put that podcast creator down and do some work. Four <laughs> bars exactly. for closers. First prize is you get some listeners. Second prize is a stare the steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. Yeah, fourth prize is dinner for two with Prince Andrew at the Pizza Express in Woking. Do yeah. age restrictions apply? <laughs> this is the time of the show yeah. we call Matt There is a very clear subject for this week that everyone's talking about and everyone's not talking about. And I thought I'd just dive into something that is familiar to people reading the news right now, but from an unfamiliar perspective. This week, because of international events, as someone who's only on social media in in a limited way, I just like Instagram and taking photos, I have been absolutely bombarded by people wanting to get into an argument about the Israel-Palestine conflict. We're talking about a much wider thing. And this is what I guess I'm going to rant against, okay, is what's happened to discussion in today's world. I live in a country which is traditionally sympathetic to one side of that conflict. And you guys live in a place that I feel is sympathetic generally to the other side. And so one's Instagram feed, for example, is absolutely filled with people not wanting to discuss anything, but wanting to get into a fight about one of the sides of this conflict. They just want to actually argue about something because none of those people live in the place in question. 
They just want to fight the global issues of the day with these incredibly angry back and forth diatribes on social media. And yesterday I turn on the news and I see two news stories that stand out. Here in Arizona, they're still recounting the votes that they claim their candidate should have won because they live in this kind of encased news bubble where Trump has been robbed of the election and they can't access any kind of wider picture. And at the same time, from the UK, actually from Ireland, there's been an Irish government inquiry into the job of Facebook moderation. Basically, Facebook and, uh, and Instagram and social media platforms are, are, are being pressed to actually police incendiary comments. Is that right? Just to talk about this in the most basic way, right? And it kind of ties into the bigger thing. Facebook employs people to moderate its content. So what that means is about as hundreds of people work in these big offices where every day they have to moderate hundreds of uh, posts, which apparently violate the Facebook rules. So these people are looking at, just to give you some examples, uh, images of uh, child pornography, people committing suicide, people dealing with extreme political opinions, uh, people in particular torturing animals, that people upload a lot of animal torture videos to, to, to Facebook. So, so they're psychologically being damaged while they're doing that work. Social media as a whole is something that I'm really tired of. It's become a technology that's imprisoned us in our own division. The only way you can deal with this on a personal level is to not use it. I turn on Instagram today and I've got three people posting about the Israeli colonization of Palestine. And then I've got three people posting about anti-Semitism. And the only way I can deal with that is by just shutting it all off. People are just unable anymore to have any kind of reasoned debate about it. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. And this story about these mm. Facebook moderators just, just tells me that some people don't even have the luxury of switching it off. By the way, the people doing this job are suffering uh, extreme psychological problems as a result of not being treated for it. Mm. I guess what I'm ranting about is the human race itself. That's a big topic, Matt. We like to think that technology solves all of our problems. And in reality, it does the reverse frequently. In the, in the 40s, they thought that nuclear power would solve the energy needs of humanity. It actually imprisoned us under the specter of nuclear war. Yeah. Social media is, is this device supposed to unite us. And I think that married to, obviously, I, I totally agree with the technology side, but also mankind has this equally difficult relationship with information. So when you marry information with technology which is basically social media you can get this control or manipulation on both those fronts everything is trial by social media before anyone's actually considered yeah. the reality and the facts so half the people who are just evangelical about what they think is true don't have a fucking clue what the actual truth is bring john in on this so of all of us you're the one that works the closest with new stuff so you must see technology being used for good a little more than the rest of us yeah i think i think so the technology is conceived usually in very positive circumstances there's a problem that needs to be solved and necessity is the mother of invention and the great minds will come together and, and you need to look at fast rollout of vaccine or fast development of a vaccine to, to show you there was a real need of that and, and it came out quicker than it has ever done in in the past and i know that particular example itself it has been like 
hijacked and politicized to shit, but it can be done. But I think once you actually kind of like implement new technology, it tends to get diluted for what it was originally intended for because people want to make money out of it. People use it for things that were never foreseen or, or intended in the original. I don't use social media very much, but I, I sometimes go on Twitter because it is like clickbait and you just sort of like stark, interesting looking, catchy statements. And and I agree with Matt, there's just, there's just absolutely zero space for a, new, a neutral comment. Even if there is any neutral comment, th- those people seem to get sort of totally uh, piled in on by one side or the other on the basis that being neutral negates their their perceived injustice for whatever the other side is doing to them. So I really think it's it all comes down to how you consume the media and how you consume news and, and being able to filter that in, in any way and understand who is putting it up there is, is, is as much an art and, and as important as, as actually what you're reading. I find with, with social media debating, a big part of the problem is the fact that if you get cornered by a, a debate that you're not if you like educated or qualified really to to get into you can just disappear look somebody in the eye and defend an undefensible position and i think that's where a lot of it comes from so like i had a really interesting one recent there was a typical crew incident a couple of weeks back where somebody had driven into somebody's car and the person had put a photo on facebook fuming somebody's crashed into my car and drove off without leaving a note if anybody saw anything around this street at this time please let me know so the logical thing to do in that situation is sorry to hear about that i'll keep my eye open or you know you maybe share it or whatever so this woman she, she, she posted that the person had been parking on the on the curb and that was illegal and that she deserved to have her audi smashed up by a by hit and run driver and it was like, Jesus Christ, like this person's just... You've just, just thrown a bomb. Just, right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. In, in a moment of, of rage, I, I put a, a fairly sort of acerbic post on basically saying, please feel free to copy and paste this comment. Sorry to hear about your accident. I'll keep my eyes open. Or worse to that effect. The likes stacked up pretty quickly. A few other people waded in. She then reported me to the group for bullying made some ridiculous statement yeah. about how yeah. she's entitled to her opinion and then did one. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly it right there, isn't it? Like, nutshell, just, yeah. like, I'm, a vic- I'm the victim. I'm the Freedom one. Speech. My opinion, my, yeah, my opinion counts above all else. Even though yeah. my argument is utterly indefensible, I still maintain that I'm right. It's just absolutely crazy. And this is what happens all the time. It's weird because you can have these trial by social media situations and people jumping to conclusions. It's funny, it's almost like an old-fashioned small-mindedness, but obviously on steroids via social, social media. At the same time, you can find unbelievable connection and positivity as well. And it's also, the problem is it's a real rabbit hole. There's, there's, there's some kind of weird, perverted draw to going down this kind of negative rabbit hole, I think. And I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't sort of I don't do Twitter for that reason because I find it sort of I prefer looking at nice pictures of stuff on Instagram. But I feel like you as an individual, one as an individual, decided to go the other way to make positive comments or to look at positive things, whatever it might be, charity type websites and looking and, and promoting the things that people are doing for the better, for the good. Yeah. Then then actually it, there is space for that too. This, we have so much access to knowledge and information. 
you know, when, when we were doing our A-levels, when I was studying my degree and stuff, it was a real mission to find stuff out. Yeah, I had to go to a library and find a book and find mm. sit in a, a, reserve in, in, a in a quiet, yeah, yeah, yeah in a quiet room and photocopy. Because we couldn't afford to buy the books and all yeah, that shit. Yeah, all that sort of shit. Yeah, I right. remember. But now, like, there's so much access to knowledge, and yet I think the population is actually getting dumber. Definitely. Definitely. Actually yeah. has Definitely. lost the ability, lost the curiosity yeah. and the ability and the willingness to go look stuff up and yeah. find stuff out. You know, They would never do that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Now you don't need to remember anything. These things that are ostensibly are there to, to save you time. Like, for example, my kids love reading Wikipedia and they just like go from thing to thing and, they, and it's almost like random articles and they love it. And it's you have to sort of caveat it with, well, this is all this is all unsubstantiated. You know, if there's something on there, you actually need to verify it twice or get a second reference or or something else to justify it. I need to uh, update my page. You were so great in World's Strongest Man, Josh. I know. Oscar-winning actor, Josh Burdett. What me and Matt were saying is that sort of a general acceptance of what you read on social media, what you see in the news, it seems like there's less and less people actually saying really is that actually true i think i'll actually just go and do a bit of research into that especially with the mainstream media everything's framed so much to work towards what it is they're trying to message they're trying to get forward it's like half truth i think there's increasingly a space for for some sort of media oversight and regulation because at the moment there's individual interests of all of the main broadcasters, you know, even the BBC is compromised, even though it's impartial and neutral. It's so not impartial. You know, yeah. it's so not. Even that impartiality is a handicap. They have to bring on a guest opposite one expert, and the other, the other one might just be, you know, a complete nobody talking absolute shit. But they, they have to be impartial. So there's, there's both sides of the argument. Basically. Can I just ask? Is there, is there any <laughs> yeah. update on the garbage truck killer? Uh, I haven't been following crime stories although there was a massive arrest last night oh, yeah. out, out front of my house at 1 1 a.m i don't think it was the garbage truck killer was it somebody massive i think it was a bunch of drug addicted homeless people that li- basically live in the parking lot directly across the street from my house which is a, always a delight are they the ones you have to step over when so... you get when you get to starbucks every <laughs> they're usually passed out by that time although um, yeah, but periodically the cops turn up and taser them and remove them to <laughs> another neighbourhood where people are less successful. Is that is that when you <laughs> ring the, the the tasering hotline, Matt, to, to get your do your neighbourhood cleaned up a little bit? <laughs> um, listen, I don't want to get into the issue of gun ownership. <laughs> is that because you're limited in how many guns you can own, Matt? Is that is that why? Let's just say let's just say sometimes a taser isn't adequate for home defence. <laughs> this is straight from the hot tap special guest interviews the thing that really has that I've really enjoyed personally is connecting with people like you. We've had a couple of guests on the show. We've had also a lot of contact with OTs and people in the Taunton area and so on. But not just that, but also that transition from childhood and adolescence to adulthood and the educational and then professional journeys have been really interesting. A lot of us felt 
back then that we were railroaded into doing things a particular way, maybe didn't have the maturity or perhaps even the, the parental guidance to follow that course, we, we were sort of left puzzling, thinking, well, that's not really for me. What next? Those stories are the ones that I found interesting. I think the best place to start for me is for you to just give me a real whistle-stop tour of how you went from the West Country to Australia and the fascinating journey you've had between then and there. It's a very long whistle-stop tour, but I'll see if I can fill in some gaps. So I was I was brought up in the West Country originally near Bath, and then I moved to Taunton when I was 13 years old when my father's job relocated. I think you probably could say I was, I was an average student that was easily distracted by extracurricular activities, um, both formal and informal. I clearly remember my first day at at school when I arrived, and I actually arrived in term two, which starts in, in January, yeah. um, whereas everyone else had arrived in September. And I, I clearly remember a boy who I now know to be called Alexander War, who is a, a now mm. a journalist and a okay. famous old Tauntonian. He pointed at me and said, who the hell is that kid? I've never seen him before in my life. When the register was called, instead of saying present or here, you had to say ads, which was um, Latin, and it was short, I think, for ad summer, which I think means I am present. And of course, having arrived in the second term, I had absolutely no idea what this meant and why everybody was saying ads. So that was a, a kind of baptism of fire. And I just copied everybody else and went along with it. My absolute favorite teacher at Taunton School and the one who's given me the most impressions throughout the rest of my life was Trevor Snow. And I've seen him on Facebook a couple of times. So I, I know he's, uh, he's still around. And he kindled my love for France and French language and all things French. We had some wonderful moments in his classes where he showed us French films, some of which may have been a bit risque for our age group, and taught us all sorts of colloquial French expressions, which probably weren't normally on the tongues of 14 or 15-year-old boys and girls. And he was also responsible for mentoring the team that produced the student magazine Grapevine, which was a, a satirical magazine full of slightly humorous quotes from members of staff and uh, pupils. I was on the staff of this for three years, primarily as the typist. Back in those days, we banged out the magazine on a BBC microcomputer. And then eventually, I suppose the, the normal way that anybody gets promoted, which is that everybody else leaves, I distinguished myself by eventually becoming editor and then distinguished myself further by leaving the school before I'd actually ever produced an edition. Matt and I uh, did, did a similar thing. And, and, and we found the, the notoriety of being involved in this slightly subversive publication extremely intoxicating we loved the fact that we could use our we didn't have voices in the normal hierarchy of things you know although i was first in cricket and played rugby to a reasonable standard i was never one of the the colors blazers brigade yes i think it's fair to say we were fairly anonymous as pupils in in the school at the time so putting out this magazine all of a sudden we had a little bit of power i, I remember one in, incident in particular where we reported on a school disco that had happened and Maybe you've been a little colourful with the truth as to what happened that particular night, which caused one of the bans that we had. But it was great fun. It was really good fun. And it gave us that feeling of being part of something quite unique and quite different. How was your experience of being involved in something that was quite, quite satirical, to use your words? It attracted the kids who weren't necessarily kicking goals elsewhere. So I wasn't particularly sporty. Um, I played rugby. I, I was a hooker, but it wasn't something I did for school versus school or anything. I was moderately academic, but Grapevine gave me, and I know some other kids who were involved with it, gave us an outlet. Looking back at the actual environment back then, this is something that we've reflected on a great deal. 
Taunton itself? Taunton the town, I've got interesting memories of. I had a lot of friends outside of school because I lived in Taunton, um, which was kind of unusual for a border, I suppose. So I was quite involved with the music scene in Taunton. I, I had a band, um, at least one member of Taunton School, uh, Julian Bushell, was, was in the band with me. We used to play pubs and clubs around Taunton in a sort of cover band, sort of hard rock, heavy metal type type music which was quite fun which pubs were you were you playing in I wonder if they're the same ones that we were in back in the day there was a pub in the high street called the blue moon and there was one in the middle of the gigantic roundabout underneath the, the roundabout called the cellar bar um, yes i remember that yeah i think we, we played that once or twice so something that came out very strongly in your email and again is something that matt will no doubt talk about when he joins us on the call was that desire stroke desperation to escape i think the west country is a great place to bring up a family and probably to to retire and go on holiday but as as a teenage boy of, of 17 i i wanted to go to london i'd seen london on the tv and uh, i knew that everybody who went to london had the most amazing life rubbing shoulders with superstars and, and that sort of thing so as soon as i was old enough and i'd passed all the or, or taken all the requisite exams at a level i drove up the m4 to london in my car and i never returned i threw my guitar in the back and drove away. So what was it like? You know, when you, you go from that environment, which, you know, it, when we were there in the mid-90s, it, it felt quite colloquial. It felt quite drab, I suppose. I personally, having come from somewhere even more remote, found Taunton quite busy and quite quite diverse. But I suppose that wore off fairly quickly as I, as I got into my adolescence. But certainly, I know from, from experience of leaving that environment and going somewhere really big and really dynamic was a real culture shock. What were your, your feelings when you touched base after that journey up the M4? Yeah, so so it's kind of interesting because my theory about London, about you know rubbing shoulders with superstars and things, actually came true almost in the first week of living there. So I started off staying behind the sofa of somebody who I knew from Taunton who'd moved to London. And these two were, were brothers, and they'd got a rental in a very dodgy part of London called, called Tottenham. And this was just after the Tottenham riots. Day three, I was staying there. They invited me to go to a party with them. And one of the guests of this party was Boy George. And so I was instantly into, wow, you know, here we are. This is London. This is the superstar lifestyle. I did go to university. I, I went to uh, what is now known as the University of North London. I did a degree in, in geography, which uh, I, I didn't you know, achieve a master's in or anything like that. And uh, and in between times, I I filled in my time by doing jobs such as delivering pizzas, selling houses. I was an estate agent for about six months. I'm just reading your uh, bio, Simon. I was astonished to read that your favorite teacher was Trevor Snow. Why were you astonished? Didn't you like No, I thought he was wonderful. (laughs) I just haven't read those words for about 15 years. I didn't jump in, but my love of French also came from Mr. Snow. I, w- I went on to do a degree in French. He's the only teacher that I've ever studied languages with that really brought the language to life and made it live and breathe rather than it being an academic exercise. At university, I had one or two that came close, but Mr. Snow made me want to understand and communicate and assimilate this French culture. And yeah, I owe him a lot for that. In the event that he listens to this podcast, I would love him to know that both my children, I have twin girls who are going to be 16 next week, and both my children also share my love of French, and both of them are going to do French at VCE, which is our equivalent here in Australia of A-levels, and that is all part of his legacy. He absolutely didn't teach me French. I think he tried, 
but I still really liked him. I remember really well him being housemaster of Evans. So Simon, you and Matt have one big thing in common, and it's very much picking up where we where we left off before Matt joined the call, and that's that sense of being a bit of a nomad. Yeah, indeed. Very, very came up very clearly in your bio, and Matt, this is something that we've yeah. talked about at length, isn't yeah. it? Where does that come from? That feeling of needing to move and needing to discover new things. I'm not really sure where it comes from. I, I think I've just had this strong desire to experience new cultures and new places, and I've always had the mindset of being a traveller and not a tourist. When I visit a new country, I like to meet local people and I like to hear their stories and understand their way of life rather than spending the entire time sitting on the beach under an umbrella drinking. I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel in some fairly remote parts of the world. I've visited almost almost 50 countries now. I've now started writing about them and, and publishing them. And, and thankfully, they seem to be of interest to, to many, many other people as well, which is good. Wow. Matt always says that, you, you know, you, your driving force for life has been to make sure at all times you get as far away as possible from talking. I mean, that's my main goal. In when I when I make a decision, but I should qualify that in the sense that it's not you know it's not like a negative statement about the place. It's more a statement about that was the mindset that I wanted to escape that emotional mindset of of what I felt was really restrictive about where we were at school. It's interesting you say that, Matt, because I had a brief conversation, and this is probably twenty years ago now, with someone I went to school with, didn't know them well, but I just happened to meet them on. I think it was called Friends Reunited in those days, and that was a chap called called Paul Weston. Paul actually said to me a phrase which really resonated with me. And he said that there were some people that were a bit different in a sea of enforced homogeneity. And I had to look that up. And of course, enforced homogeneity means that everybody is being made to be the same. Some people that kick goals in different ways. That's really interesting. And I think it's funny talking about Mr. Snow because he was clearly one of them in a really good way. I always just knew that I was different and I didn't fit in. Simon, something you touched on there was really resonates with me was that enforced homogenization. I certainly felt that. I never quite felt like I lived up to the ideals that were laid down by the, the establishments, if you like. It becomes more apparent that being different is actually acceptable when you leave school. And when you get out into the outside world, and you actually find that everybody's different. And it's, it's just the environment of a school. And I guess this would be the same in any school where this uh, sort of peer pressure to conform rears its head. So on your travels then, then, Simon, you must have had some experiences that when you talk to other people and tell them about it, they wonder how much you had to drink. <laughs> and many, many experiences like that. Indeed, there's a couple of stories that I've dined out on many times and, and since they have appeared in my books. And one that comes to mind is we spent six weeks in, in the country of Tonga. Tonga is very much off the tourist trail, a very remote country where we were probably one of only 100 tourists in the entire country at the time. No infrastructure. We stayed on remote beaches where there was no electricity and no running water. And it was a very, very interesting experience. And one incident that I've, I've written about in my book, um, The Coconut Wireless, was when we were flying on a tiny plane and about to land on a on a teeny tiny island. And it was a commercial plane. And there was only 17 seats. And I was sat next to a nun. And I had this sort of thing in my mind from watching Leslie Nielsen movies that every airline disaster <laughs> has a nun involved in it. Well, she's playing a guitar at the same time. Yeah, I was, a bit, I was a bit nervous about that. As we came into land, and it was, of course, a dirt runway. It wasn't a, a tarmac runway. As we came into land, I could see, and I was sitting right behind the pilot, and I could see yeah. this man running around on the runway, waving his arms frantic. I had no idea what 
he was doing. And, and I was genuinely concerned that he was going to be killed by our plane. And I actually turned to the nun and I said to her, well, what's that man doing? And she said, oh, don't worry about him. He's the airport manager. And he has to run up and down on the runway before the plane lands to scare the pigs off. <laughs> Brilliant. You got two books, right? The Coconut Wireless and An Englishman in New York. That's right. So The Coconut Wireless is my most recent release that came out in March. Um, and that one's doing very, very well. And that is about six weeks that we spent in, in Tonga. It's a fun travel memoir. It takes uh, you through the journey of how myself and, and my now wife ended up in Tonga. Essentially, we were traveling from London, where we lived, to New Zealand, where she came from, because her English visa had expired. And I made the decision to go and live in New Zealand with her. And in fact, I'm now writing about that. But The Coconut Wireless is a, is a tale of six weeks we spent in Tonga on the way. The Englishman in New York book, which you mentioned, is, is a much more serious tome. And that is really, I suppose, how I started my writing career. Because when my father passed away in 2014, I found among his possessions a bunch of letters that it turned out he had written from when he lived in New York, age 21. He was a, uh, a rotary fellow, uh, as it was called, which was sort of uh, a, a student studying a master's in New York. Um, and of course, for an English person to travel to New York at all in the 1940s um, was extraordinary in itself. But to spend a year there to experience the life of America in post-war times, when England was still in rationing, every other house was smashed to smithereens by bombs. And the, the life that he describes in America was quite amazing. And when I read these letters that he'd written and, and had been kept, I just thought to myself, these are too good to keep to myself. I can't just put them back in the cupboard. So I spent some time transcribing them, reading my father's awful handwriting. And it took me some time to transcribe them. And, and I found out that he dined with the Rockefellers. He had met and had lengthy discussions with the children of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the president of the US during the war. And so he met some quite famous people. He had some fairly extraordinary experiences including witnessing the election of Harry Truman, which was such an extraordinary event because Harry Truman was so unexpected to win the election that the newspapers were actually printed saying he had lost. Huey defeats Truman was the headline. That's exactly right. And my father writes a very lengthy first-hand eyewitness account of the night of the election and the excitement. And I read that and I thought, well, I've got to put this into a book because some people will be interested in it. And how did the process of reading those letters resonate with you as an adult? You know, because obviously I think Matt and I talked at length about our relationships with our fathers and, and how they can be very challenging at times. And it's sometimes quite difficult to sort of admit that you see yourself in your father sometimes. Did you have that experience when you read that? Did you find yourself seeing your father in a different light? A hundred percent. I mean, my father was writing as a 21-year-old and I'd only ever known my father as a sort of 50-year-old. So it was it was very, very different indeed. Some of the experiences that he had, I think it sort of made me realise that one of the reasons I had a love of travel as well, I suppose, is that he, he also had a love of travel. Absolutely. Wow. It, it, that's an incredible experience, isn't it? Getting to know your father or any family member in a kind of a private way, because you sort of think of these people as these forces. And then you realise that as you get older, that they're actually people. I have a similar experience, but rather than through letters, it's through photographs. So my family have always been avid photographers and my grandfather and grandmother lived in Kenya for, for 20, 25 years or so. They've got boxes and boxes of slides 
old Fujichrome slides and putting them on and closing the blinds and putting a, a projector out and a big screen and actually experiencing their life in a completely different world was something that I found very, very interesting and very, really makes me understand a little bit the way I see the world as well. Because like you guys, you know, I have this, this endless sort of need for discovery. So Australia then, Simon, you've been in Australia now for quite some time, haven't you? And this, by the sounds of it, is somewhere you've settled probably more so than you have anywhere else. We settled in Australia about 14 years ago. My wife and I had, had twins when they're about one year old, I suppose. My wife wanted to move nearer her family and we ended up uh, choose, choosing Melbourne because Melbourne... I felt had the best employment opportunities. But a lot of people go out there and they don't really settle. They find it culturally quite quite difficult to, to make a life. How did you find that experience? So, so here's the thing about Australia, is that Australians speak a version of English. And it, <laughs> it fools people who are emigrating into thinking that the countries are in some way similar. People who emigrate to Australia probably would never consider emigrating to um, I don't know, let's say Kenya or Mongolia because of the massive language barrier. But because Australia speaks English after a fashion, um, it makes the entire experience much easier. And mm. in many ways, I think it makes it too easy. And people think it is going to be the same as England, just with better mm. weather. And when they come out and they find that once you've been to the beach, every day for a month you probably don't go there much anymore and sunshine and heat can actually be a negative thing which of course people who live in england never appreciate ever i mean anytime the sun comes out in england you know people are like woohoo it's uh, it's summer whereas when you're stuck inside because it's 40 degrees outside and you don't go out and you just hibernate inside the air conditioning yeah. And in some parts of Australia, that can happen for days and days on end. In fact, I mean, in Queensland, I have friends that seem to live their entire lives before dawn and after twilight. They even do gardening under floodlight. It is just so hot. Where I live is very similar. You don't go out. I don't think it reaches that intensity of heat, but you certainly don't really try and do anything or go outside after about 10 a.m. Probably the place that I felt one of the most foreign places I've been to, by that I mean culturally very different to England with different mindsets different ways of seeing the world and so on was america i found it culturally really really strange and this is specifically florida how was your experience of kind of taking that taunton upbringing into the united it's, states it's, it was a strange experience because you know the thing is that taunton school like aside from anything that happened there positive or negative i just got on a really excellent education i just was equipped for life in a really good way even though, by the way, I failed my geography A-level. I always knew that US was an incredibly extreme place. And that's what attracted me to it. When I arrived here full-time, and I, I came here briefly in 97, and then I moved here full-time in 2002. It's a very, very difficult immersive experience because you're living in a country that, like Simon says, you think that because they speak English, it's a similar mindset in some way. It's culturally comparable to england but it really is culturally utterly different to england because america is the fusion of, of several hundred different cultures into one the three things that people from england always dwell on is the gun issue the healthcare issue and the crazy politics now when i look at my british passport which i've still got 
I look at the image on the front of like the crown. And I just think that's so weird. It's that I supposedly belong to a country that I just turn my back on and don't even know. So I wouldn't say my English accent gives me any advantage at all in, in Australia, but the, the wonderful thing. Here, if you speak with a British accent, people think you're 40% smarter than you are. One thing I found when I lived in France, and admittedly I lived in France for a year, whereas you guys have been overseas for, for many years, I went with every intention of really assimilating French culture. My friends from university who were all scientists, they used to joke that, you know, Dave wanted to be a biologist, Will wanted to be a chemist, and me, I wanted to be French. I guess it was part of me that very much saw myself as a global citizen. I'm not exaggerating, sort of six, seven months in, realising that I was foreign, realising that I was never going to be as assimilated as I'd like to have been, I became more and more British by the day. I started pining British food. I started listening to Radio 5 Live almost as, as an obsession. It was the only station I could pick up back then. Do you find that you you retain and you almost protect that bit of you that's British? So, I mean, I've found that in many situations, I, I have to be Australian because people struggle to understand some of the phrases that I use. Yeah, so I've had to sort of let the Britishness go. And, and I was never particularly attached to it anyway, to tell the truth. I yeah. mean, I, it's interesting because I've never considered myself British. I've always considered myself English. And I have a flagpole outside my house, as many Australians do. And I, I fly the Australian flag some days. And some days I fly the New Zealand flag for my wife. Mm. And, and some days I fly the George Cross. I never fly mm. the Union Jack ever. So I'm definitely English. But as far as, I mean, as, far as being Australian, I suppose... I had to assimilate quite quickly into learning the language. And we mm. talked about how both countries speak English, but in fact, it's a very different English. There's a lot of very mm. unique colloquial expressions that I've had to learn. And when the newscaster says, and there's been a terrible accident on the Monash freeway today, and it's involving a B-double, but don't worry because Ambos and Fireys are in attendance. You, you sort of wonder what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> they have a unique way of shortening the language, don't they, to right. make it yeah. sound more yeah. lyrical and, almost, yeah. And everybody has a shortened name, although they haven't actually managed to shorten mine yet, which I'm quite pleased about. But I, I remember when I, <laughs> when I first moved here, being introduced to someone whose name I subsequently discovered was William Fleming, but everyone mm. called him Flemo. Which, Demo, yeah. which sounded sort of like something you cough up in the back of your throat. Brilliant. Yeah. So Johnny, the co-host, when he was out there, his surname was Cotton and, and he was called Cotto. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Good day, yeah. Cotto. <laughs> Looking at your life now, you know, what bits of, of Taunton do you think you've retained after all these years? In the early years after leaving Taunton and going to university, I found this wonderful thing at university where I didn't actually have to do any homework and it was okay not to turn up to class if you've been out night clubbing all day, which it wasn't at Taunton School. I think the other thing is, is that I discovered as I entered working life at various levels is that Taunton had given me a great education that others hadn't been lucky enough to have. And, you know, we talk about the homogeneity of, of Taunton and everything. But, I mean, for instance, my, ma my manager at my first job could hardly read or write. I mean, she couldn't spell. She couldn't spell basic words. And, and I found that quite shocking that anybody could have left school and not have basic life skills, which we were lucky enough to, to have having been educated at Taunton. Massively. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think as Matt touched upon there as well, you know, he talks about how people in America don't debate and don't discuss and don't question things i would extend that to places other than taunton if i'm honest because i think i haven't met many people that will sit in a room and discuss history politics religion whatever it is quite the same way we do we challenge we question we were always asked and taught 
to think for ourselves. And that's something I really value more than anything else, actually. Traffic Island Discs. I had a good think about these questions. And uh, in fact, the, the first question I sort of understood is you wanted me to write one song that reminded me of Taunton School itself. So I've done that. And that song will always be You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. And that is that is from the school discos at, at Taunton, where we managed to persuade the DJ to play that particular song. And myself and my friends, Kieran Mulvaney and Andrew Freudenberg, both of whom coincidentally have become writers since, since they left school, we sort of stuck our heads inside the speakers and uh, and pretended we were we were heavy metal fans. And we were approached afterwards by Norman Roberts, who was the headmaster at the time. And he and he said, boys, no more head bashing. <laughs> Every time I hear that song come on the radio and in Australia, ACDC being an Australian band's played quite a bit. I'm always reminded, transported back to, to those school discos. One song that reminds me of that period of my life. And once again, I mean, we're talking about school. So I sort of related this to French Exchange. Yes. Trevor Snow had taken a group of us over to France. And we were in a, a sort of disco in, in France. I think it was a disco for a school or something. I can't honestly remember. And the song... I Won't Let You Down by PhD was playing. And this has this repetitive phrase where it says, I won't let you down. And my school friend, Bill Revens, who I think is now mayor of North Petherton or something, he came up to me and, and said quite loudly in my ear, because the music was loud, he said, I won't let you down. Is he talking to a tire? And <laughs> for some reason, we, we both found that extremely funny at the time. And, and every time yeah. I hear that song, I'm reminded of that split second in time where, where Bill and I were on the... Uh, in at that disco together one song that personally makes me feel happy this is easy echo beach by martha and the muffins yes um, lovely song it's one of my favorite songs it's always on full volume in my car if it, if it comes on the radio and the wonderful thing i think about echo beach is that echo beach doesn't refer to a geographical location there is no beach called echo beach but it refers to a symbolic notion of somewhere that you'd rather be you know it was written by somebody who was working in a factory on rather a mundane job and he was dreaming of being somewhere else, and that caused him to write Echo Beach. And it's a state of mind rather than a physical place. I find music is a good indicator of somebody's background and nationality, actually. You know, when I lived in France, I'd, I'd find the music that I loved, the French would find utterly bizarre, you know. And likewise, apart from sort of French rap, you know, MC Solar and, and a bit of a rock band called Noir Désir, I can honestly say I haven't assimilated any French music. When I went to London, I really got into rap music and house music and the nightclub, the whole nightclub scene. And I really, really got into that sort of music. And actually, those two two types of music actually cross over in some places. Which yes. Kind of interest. Then when I moved to New Zealand, I actually worked as a musician for a year because I couldn't actually earn any other money. That was the only way I could do it. I had my guitar with me, so I played guitar in pubs. And the music that was requested in New Zealand pubs was none of what I just mentioned. The vast majority of New Zealanders, New Zealand pub goers, apart from a few backpacker pubs that I played in, which we'll come on to in a second, the vast majority of New Zealanders wanted to hear Cliff Richard and Kenny Rogers. <laughs> my repertoire was very trendy with Oasis and The Verve and all this sort of thing, and I had yeah. to quickly quickly update my repertoire to play, you know, The Coward of the County and, and The Gambler and, and Living Doll. I was being a what I termed a prostitute. I was playing what I was paid for. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then I did find a couple of English backpacker pubs where there was young English people there where I could get away with playing my normal repertoire. So the last question we had was that day you could relive, wasn't it? You know, if you could pick any day from your past, which one would it be? We're in Paris with Trevor Snow and a few other, I think we were lower, lower sixth. 
boys and girls. And I went with another boy who was called Robert Whittaker. And we went to try and find this nightclub in Paris called Cactus Charlie's, or as, as we knew it, Le Cactus Charlie. And we got, we got very lost trying to find this nightclub. And we, we had to ask all these people where Le Cactus Charlie was. Uh, anyway, we eventually found it. And we got inside in, into the nightclub and we, we sort of sat down and, and we're talking to some other people and trying to talk French with some of the locals. And this older lady began talking to me and she was probably around maybe 40. It's hard to tell ages when I'm only sort of 17, 16 myself. She physically resembled a Mediterranean Tina Turner. Her name, I still remember it, was Madame Leroy Cala. And <laughs> I had no idea why she took a fancy to me because bear in mind I was a 16 year old boy. She was significantly older than that. And I sort of, I felt I was a, a bit like I was in the graduate or something, you know, but she arranged to meet me the day after. And we met at this uh, subway station and she took me on the most wonderful trip around Paris. She paid for absolutely everything. I was very, very flattered by the attention. I think Trevor Snow was rather envious when I told him what I was doing. And she asked for nothing in return except the company of a young English boy. And it was the most extraordinary day. And I mean, these these days, there's no way that a teacher would have allowed that sort of thing to happen. So when you asked about a, a day I could I could relive from my Taunton days, that, that's, that's one I particularly remember. Brilliant, Simon. I've absolutely loved speaking to you this evening i think it's been really interesting i'm glad that we got there with the, the technology in the end the thing i found most interesting is definitely the fact that it really feels like you lit a flame back in 1986 and no doubt that flame has passed to you by somebody else and it, and it feels like matt and josh and johnny and i to some extent have taken that flame forward and whatever was it was that was burning in taunton back in the day that love of travel that love of foreign cultures that no, no madness and that love of funny situations has, has really been carried on forward hasn't it i'm really really grateful that we've we've had the opportunity to speak yeah indeed it's been good to connect with you this is news reviews you got the good jingle today lou I know. Thanks for no donkey this week. <laughs> so we've got quite a lot of good reviews, actually, this week. There's no hate. We've had quite a lot of reviews based on safe sack technology. Firstly, I'm going to start with this one because Matt's been trying to generate reviews and listens and things by reviewing podcasts. So he's been reviewing podcasts in the hope that they'll review this podcast. I feel British. As an American, I feel like I'm sitting eavesdropping on a Zoom chat with four friends who are very much more cultured than me. It's funny and I have learned a lot about European dynamics. And that's from She Will Rock You podcast. There you go. They're great podcasts, actually. They basically take figures from the world of rock and roll and look at it as a sort of, almost like a history lesson with a bit of banter thrown in. It's a... It's good fun. They're worth uh, they're worth an hour of your time. But no, thanks a lot for for reviewing us, guys. This next one is from Sarah, and she says, "Shaven balls to teapot poisoning. What the heck? I remember my own sixth form recce room. Thank God we had no internet back then. I agree. Also, Lou, you sounded a bit pissed by the end. Were you?" <laughs> 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 
Does right. that mean you you accept all of the snorting noises that were made, Lou? <laughs> I just can't help it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say to Matt the next day, bloody hell, you need to like edit out some of the snorts that I did. (laughs) They happened. So the next uh, review is from Laura. You might have heard this one. She says she managed to stab herself in the eye with a mascara wand because she was laughing so much at this uh, latest episode. Safe sack technology. I almost wet myself listening to these reviews. Can't wait to see if Matt will read my script too. (laughs) (laughs) There's no response from Matt about that. He's probably reading Um, someone's script. This next one is really funny, actually. And so Barbara from Castbox says, I love the podcast. I like how it's about stupid middle-aged men talking about how awful tantrum is. I don't think I'm going to go there after this. Please give me a shout out. Well, I mean, middle-aged oh, men oh. talking about ta- this is a different yeah. podcast. What? It's either the typo of Taunton or like a kind of deliberate typo calling it tantrum. But either way, yeah. Yeah. Hi, Barbara. Um, Thanks for your review. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Barbara. I'll accept stupid, but middle-aged. I mean, guys, I'm in denial here. Barbara, these guys are middle-aged. I'm still yeah. young. Oh, you're back. Apologies. I had to just do a quick speaking gig at a how to be successful conference (laughs) (laughs) just given a dynamite lecture on how the battles won or lost before it's even started we thought you were reading laura's script no i don't read other people's scripts if you in case you've listened to my rant on the last podcast the secret of success is within you and also sometimes tied to how much money you've inherited but let's not talk (laughs) okay so the last review for this week is this is from someone called Gillian and she says well it's fair to say it wasn't what I expected I cannot see what a segment on male personal grooming has to do with Taunton and the review section well it's very clear that they are all totally made up according to Lou's reviews people are enjoying the podcast it is making them laugh even about bestiality jokes well, either some extreme sick and disturbed people listen, or this is made up. Who even is? Lose reviews. She hasn't even been to Taunton. I have made my feelings known on Mumsnet and will not be listening again. <laughs> like, yes. Is that from James Creamer? I mean, we're Jeez. losing a big audience if Mumsnet aren't tuning in, though. Just bringing it back to my to my popular lecture. Success is making other people talk about you, even if it's negative. So I say job well done. Indeed. Indeed. We are 29 downloads away from 1,000. Nice. That's pretty amazing. What happens? What happens after 1,000? I mean, there's only one thing to it. We have to get the 10,000. And the way to do that is clear. We get Prince Andrew on. <laughs> Prince Andrew tells all Falkland War veteran, Pizza Express in Woking aficionado, lover, not a hater of international sex slaves. <laughs> 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 definitely not a hater at all. 
<laughs> Nothing <laughs> screams Taunton like the black sheep of the royal family. <laughs> I wonder if Prince Andrew's been to Taunton. Anyway, thank you for that. Enlightening as always. And so, you know what you know what time it is now. It's uh, time for Taunton Matters. Yes. 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 Oh, yes. this is great. Straight out of the mean streets of SW8, Superman's best friend, Dan Carter's life coach, and the man they call the face of Specsavers. The wire-avoiding international man of mystery, Josh. This is Taunton Matters. The only logical place to kick off today is with someone called Kaz Barnes, who's asking, where is the best place to get hair stripped of box colour? I just don't even know what that means. So, Lou, anyone? <laughs> Thought we could just put her straight on to smooth my balls. That probably would sort the problem out. <laughs> shave it yeah. all off. A box colour. It's like what you buy from the supermarket. It's like DIY hair colouring. You go to a salon and pay maybe 40, 50 quid for them to dye your hair. You can go to the supermarket, buy it for six quid, do it yourself. It's a really shit job. Okay. No wonder she wants to get rid of it. <laughs> well, if anyone in Taunton can help this poor lady, get in touch. Going back to one of our very first podcasts, the Museum of Somerset is officially oh. announcing that they are reopening on Wednesday, the 19th of May. And Brilliant. the message here is to pre-book your visit and you can do so online and they advise you to do that. So yeah, get over there. There's some good uh, sound effects of the early Neanderthals. Is there some uh, chinking of some Roman artisanal blacksmiths and, and stuff? I, th- I think so. Oh. But unless you get a ticket in advance, you may never know because it's going to be yeah. inundated. No, I mean, with... What I'm trying to say is, have you been hired to do that at any point, Josh? In the last... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what's wearing a Nazi outfit? The answer is no, but if anyone from you know the museum of someone says listening and needs an actor to do those things, I'm available. Let's let's talk. Do you want to get the uh, the visitors into the museum of Taunton though? Like a full life size waxwork of the dinner that Prince Andrew had in Pizza Express. I actually yeah. think that's a brilliant idea, and and actually it would be interesting <laughs> if if we made it a sort of an interactive exhibit. You know, like with oh, the dinosaurs, the press about and the dinosaur roars. Yeah, yeah, and you could put the heating up to like forty degrees and and see who sweats and see if he sweats. Yeah, <laughs> what would happen if and you then, press a button, Matt? But you press a button and it, like it pops a boner or something. Maybe he's like his hand moves and he like touches his dining <laughs> companion. <laughs> <laughs> and, I reckon all of this content is absolutely fine if you just overdub Andrew with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> No one will know what we're talking about. No one will ever know. A lady called Fiona Stewart, we can help her, I think. She's asking, can I have your recommendations for dog-friendly pubs around Taunton? New to the area, so I'd love to know where is great. Greyhound in Staplefitz, Spain, Fiona. The Greyhound. Staplefitz, Spain, drop in. Nominative determinism there. there. Yeah. The clue is in the name. No question at all. And you should, and you could uh, ask the Dutch manager a few questions about the local area. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah exactly. So he knows the answer. Hannah Jones is asking, "Hi, does anyone know if there is anyone in Taunton that services Kenwood Kitchen mixers?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is about as niche it gets. What are the responses? Uh, any any takers for that? A lady saying, "I think Clark's Electrical on East Reach used to." 
And then another person piped in from her response going, yeah, forgot about him. Had a mixer years ago from him. <laughs> so it's all pretty, pretty, pretty helpful stuff. It wouldn't be Facebook until somebody mentions the Israel-Palestine conflict. I don't think anyone in, on Torns Matters has gone there yet, but who knows. Whereas Sharon Grant is asking a question which only one man can answer. And her question is, can anyone recommend a good and sensibly priced window cleaner for us us in the Stone Gallows area, please? Johnny, you know the Stone Gallows area particularly well, don't you? Easy peasy, squeegee sleazy can send a uh, glass technician down there uh, uh, tomorrow. We'll be there at 7am, preferably whilst you're having a bath or a shower. (laughs) Oh my God. So there you go. That's that question answered. You won't be wanting that on your um, business cards, will you? We'll, we'll abbreviate. <laughs> we'll just go for the acronym. Epps. Epps. Epstein. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All roads lead to Pizza Express. Pizza Express, if you're listening, we'll, we'll do your windows for free. I think we should get the manager of Pizza Express in Woking on. I fucking love Pizza Express. If I could go to Pizza Express right now, I would do it. I was going to say, do they not have them in America? It seems like all you have in where you are a series of extremely expensive avocado sandwich shops with overpriced novelty drinks. We don't have any Pizza Expresses. And quite frankly, I yearn to go to Pizza Express. I just like to just go into Pizza Express again, sit down, order an American hot and just think about my childhood. When you're back in when you're back in England permanently in three weeks' time, we can go there. <laughs> we'll take you there, Matt. Yeah. We'll, I'll buy you some dough balls. Guys, we missed a landmark day this week. On the 11th of May is Somerset Day. Oh my um, god! Oh, someone has said, you know, I love I love Somerset every day. So to all you doubters, have a great Somerset Day and be kind. I think that might have been aimed. It's like literally headlong at us. That is someone who is struggling with a lot of internal anger. <laughs> that is someone who I don't want to run into in a grocery store. <laughs> and who should not receive a firearm license. But there's a guy here, which I mean, I would encourage everyone to go onto YouTube and check out. Although you can also get it directly from Taunton Matters from his post. But he's called Henry Buckton. And he's written a song in kind of commemoration of Somerset Day. And it's called... Somerset's a land of sun, and it's by Henry Buckton. And there's a lot of references to cider and milk and farming. And I would just check it out if you really. Sadly ironic that actually it's a place where the farming industry has all but collapsed and given up the ghost, and you rarely see any sun. A positive shout out to a Somerset-based charity called Promise Works. Happy Somerset Day! As a Somerset-based charity, we we want to use this special day to say thank you to our local community and amazing volunteers who donate time and money to help us achieve our mission, which is to deliver inspirational mentoring for Somerset's most vulnerable, disaffected, and disadvantaged young people. So there you go. Promise Works sounds like a good charity. Supporting. uh... Good job. Well, that takes us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. This week's Taunton Business shout-out goes to the Museum of Somerset at Taunton Castle. This fabulous museum brings to life the sights, sounds and noises of Somerset through the ages and has reopened after a lengthy shutdown due to Covid. Be sure to book your visit, it's definitely worth a trip. This was straight from the hot tap.
Duppy Media is a Taunton web development business guaranteed to bring your web projects to life. From one-page sites to full e-commerce enabled web builds, Duppy Media can give your company the edge you know it deserves. Call Mark at Duppy Media for e-commerce web hosting, new builds and website additions. You will find Mark's personalised and tailored service the perfect partner for injecting some sparkle into your company's website and at a very competitive price. Visit www.duppymedia.co.uk for more information.